today, as uh, Katie said, today we're starting a new series of sermons uh, leading up to Easter, and uh, this series is entitled Miracles in Mark. Um, In the last two years leading up to Easter, we've looked at parables. Uh, Well, this series will look at miracles in Mark's gospel. And you might ask, why Mark's gospel? Well, Mark's gospel actually is dominated by miracles. Uh, Mark's gospel is, I guess, more generally understood to be the action-packed gospel. Uh, There are fewer long conversations, short sermons, and a lot of stuff happening all the time. The phrase, and immediately, becomes something of a catchphrase. And the disciples and the crowds are frequently described as being amazed or overwhelmed with wonder. With respect to miracles and supernatural activity, Mark devotes more space proportionally to miracles than any of the other three Gospels. In fact, a third of Mark's Gospel is devoted to miracles, 17 individual miracles described, as well as summaries of many others. So why Mark's Gospel? Well, that's why Mark's Gospel. You might ask, why miracles? Well, actually, because miracles are easy to ignore or misunderstand. Uh, All four Gospels show people either ignoring miracles, simply because they were too difficult to make sense of, or interpreting them in such manner as to make them hostile to Jesus and his message. Uh, I guess, uh, for example, in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, the, the, the Pharisees, the, the religious teachers of Jesus' day, the Pharisees ignore a miracle done right in front of them, the, the, the healing of a man with a shriveled hand, because all they could see was somebody undermining their authority. And in another place, in that same chapter, the teachers of the law, another group of religious experts, they declare that it is only by a satanic power that Jesus drives out evil spirits. Um, In chapter 8, verse 11 and following, the the Pharisees come to Jesus and question him. Um, Testing him, they ask him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given it. And he walks away. And what's really strange about that request and interesting about Jesus' response is that they've just seen an extraordinary sign. The feeding of the 4,000 was done just then in front of them. And indeed, the bulk of Jesus' miracles, healings and exorcisms, they were done publicly. All historical sources, Jewish, Roman, Christian, All historical sources attest to the fact that Jesus' public ministry was saturated in signs and wonders. Healing miracles, exorcisms, raising people from the dead, walking on water, feeding multitudes. The miracles of Jesus are an historical fact. Where the historical sources vary, of course, is how they interpret them. According to the Romans, Jesus the conjurer, the deceiver. According uh, to the Jews, Jesus demon-possessed. And of course, for us Christians, Jesus the Son of God. 
So returning to the Pharisees, how could they possibly have missed all those signs? Well, in a sense, they haven't. They just haven't known how to understand them. They just haven't seen them in a sense. They don't know what to make of them. Perhaps they were looking for some unequivocal demonstration of power, proving convincingly that Jesus is the Messiah King. They possibly might have, have had in mind uh, miracles like some of Elijah's or Elisha's miracles, particularly when they called down fire on their opponents. Or perhaps they were thinking, like Moses, of a raised staff and a whole sea dividing in two. The majority of the miracles in the Old Testament do tend to be, mostly, but not totally, they do tend to be miracles of judgment, whereas Jesus' miracles are different. They're miracles of salvation. But as such, they're really hard for the Pharisees to understand. And miracles can be hard for us to understand as well. The, The miracles of Jesus have in the last few centuries Uh, sometimes been a point of embarrassment to the church, especially in the culturally and scientifically enlightened West, so to speak. Um, We have grappled with miracles according to our own categories. We, We might see Jesus breaking the laws of nature as he walks on water or feeds a multitude, and we're scandalized by that. And I know that it is not at all rare in churches for pastors and preachers to supply what might be called natural explanations for these phenomena, the existence of a sandbank, for example, to explain the walking on water. This approach is, of course, as irritatingly blind as the Pharisees. So, so why miracles? Because They can be hard to understand and they can be easy to ignore. But if you do know how to interpret them, it turns out that miracles are extraordinarily, are an extraordinarily powerful and articulate form of communication. So much is said by a miracle, it's miraculous. But you do need to know how to interpret them. Um... Fortunately, that's actually not that hard at all. The clues that you need in order to understand them are all given in the text, whether that means the the immediate context in the gospel or perhaps the larger context in in the Bible itself. So today starts a 10-week series. We won't look at all 17 miracles in Mark's gospel. And indeed, we we jump in today in chapter 2. We're looking at the healing of the paralytic, the healing of the paralyzed man. And our miracle today... Uh, Mark chapter 2 is a very public miracle. By the beginning of chapter 2, of course, Jesus is already famous, a public figure. In chapter 1, just to take a few minutes to to recap and bring us up to speed, in chapter 1, we hear as Jesus is baptized publicly by John the Baptist, we read about Jesus calling his first disciples And we hear about how he taught with authority and cast out demons and healed the sick, including Peter's mother-in-law and a certain leper who went out spreading everywhere the news. So that by the end of the chapter, the news about Jesus had spread so far as to make it very difficult for Jesus to enter a town openly. So rather he stayed outside, Mark tells us, in lonely places. And yet, Mark adds, the people still came to him from everywhere. 
So when Jesus re-enters his hometown of Capernaum, a large crowd quickly gathers. And Jesus was there, verse 2, to, Mark tells us, preach the word to them. Although we notice that Mark isn't really interested at all in telling, him, in telling us what was in the sermon that day. He just skips over there, he preached the word. He's more interested in the miracle. Um, but we do know so far from chapter 1, we actually know quite a bit about Jesus and what his message was. At his baptism, for example, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove and a voice came from heaven, verse 11, saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And if we were there on that day and if we were believing Jews who knew our holy scriptures, then as we listened to that voice, we would have heard things that were inexpressibly good unimaginably good news because the phrase, you are my son, well, that immediately brings to mind a whole bunch of Old Testament references, including Psalm 2 and Psalm 89. Who is the son of God? It's the king. It's the king of Israel, the one descended from King David. Um, And we would have heard, possibly barely believing our ears, we would have heard, yes, this is the one, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised king from God. And the phrase, whom I love, Well, that also resonates with a whole variety of passages from the the, the Old Testament telling us that this isn't just any king descended from the line of David. This is the one who fulfills finally the promises, the, the prophecies. This is a king of Israel unlike any before. Not a Messiah. This is the Messiah. And that understanding would have been confirmed by the phrase, "...with you I am well pleased." which immediately brings to mind the the, the suffering servant from the oracles of the prophet Isaiah. And we know this is the suffering servant. This is the Messiah who will suffer in order that the people of Israel may be forgiven their sins. So then, Jesus himself proclaims the good news. Chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus is the King, the Holy One of God. And we can assume then, and on that day in Capernaum, Jesus, in preaching the word, was preaching about the kingdom and its nature and what it means to follow him as King. But the sermon was interrupted. A man comes through the roof A man lying on a cot, a paralyzed man being lowered by his four friends right in front of Jesus. And that's because there was no other way to get their friends to Jesus. And we can imagine a Middle Eastern home, a a flat roof with a, a brick or stone staircase leading up to the roof. A small parapet around the edge of the roof according to the law of Moses so that people sleeping on the roof don't roll and fall off and kill themselves. Because that's what the roof is for. It's for sleeping on during hot summer nights. And the roof itself is, is made uh, with branches as rafters and then mud mixed with straw baked in the hot sun to form a hard clay floor. Breaking through would have been hard work and it would have made a heck of a mess. But it would not have been difficult necessarily for four guys to do this. And 
we expect, of course, Jesus, I mean, Jesus has got important things to say here. You know, we expect Jesus to be irritated, angry, annoyed, just as I am whenever anybody interrupts my sermons. But he's not. He's thrilled. Why is he thrilled? He's thrilled because this is faith. What's faith? Well, there are many good ways of describing faith, but in general, faith is a believing response to whatever it is that God has to say. These men think that Jesus is the solution to their problems, and they're right. That's a believing response to what God has to say about Jesus. They're right. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that's an extraordinary declaration for any number of reasons, and it doesn't go unnoticed. Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, what is sin? Sin sin is a state of mind, kind of. It's a spiritual state of mind, and it's the actions which follow out from that, the sins. It's, it's, It's our rebellion. It's our rejection of God's authority and rule over our lives, and it's the hatred and enmity that exists between us and God and us and each other as a result of that. Sin actually is spiritual paralysis. It prevents us from walking with God. If our sins are forgiven, it's not simply just that we've got a clean slate, but rather more than that, we are now friends with God. We are now God's friends. And that's extraordinary to be righteous, to be right with God, to be God's friend. That's an extraordinary thing. The reaction of the teachers of the law is predictable because it's right. Who who can forgive sin but God alone? Sin is, by definition, offense against God. Um, If somebody was to steal from me, sure, I I can forgive them. But if somebody was to steal from you, I can't forgive them on your behalf. If, if, if Blake steals from Evan, I can't say, I forgive you, Blake. It's got nothing to do with me. Evan and Evan alone can forgive that theft. Only God can forgive offenses committed against him. The teachers of the law, however, their point is not simply that Jesus is mistaken. No, they label Jesus' words as blasphemy. They're saying Jesus is acting as though he's God. If, if a human being acts like God, then he's rejected God's authority. That's, that's blasphemy. All sin logically is blasphemy. All sin is rejecting God's authority in favor of your own. So the teachers of the law are, are saying that in forgiving sin, Jesus is sinning. And yet, Even though they've taken up a hostile position with respect to Jesus, Christ's response to them is both gracious and kind. You be the judge. It's easy. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's, It's not quite so easy, is it? It's not quite so easy to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to see for yourselves that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, the point that Jesus is making 
is that he is indeed God's authorized representative on earth, just as Moses was, just as the prophets were. They came in the name of the Lord, God's miracle-working, authorized representative speaking on God's behalf. And, And Jesus is making this point because he shares with the Pharisees the assumption that a healing miracle would be a fair demonstration that God was authenticating his ministry to Israel. So, in order to make his point, all that Jesus needs to do now is to say, in the name of the Lord, get up, take your mat, and walk. In order to make his point, that's all he needs to do. But it's not what he does. He says, I tell you, take your mat and go home. Uh, Jesus doesn't pray. Uh, He doesn't call on the name of the Lord. He doesn't invoke the name of the Lord. He just says, I tell you. And the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And of course they haven't. I mean, the paralyzed man, we can safely assume the paralyzed man had had a severed spinal column by way of some accident that had left him permanently paralyzed, probably from the chest or waist down. Um, Today, medical science may be somewhere on the threshold of being able to repair broken nerves. And perhaps we might see, even in our own lifetimes, we might see people being medically healed of paralysis. And I hope and pray that that is so. I I do. I hope so. Praise God. That That would be lovely. But I reckon that even if this technology became available today, I'm sure that the restoration of the spinal column would be just the first step on a journey of rehabilitation that would take weeks or months as the legs and everything learnt to do what they're supposed to be doing, you know, they'd go into rehab. Uh, This man has been healed and restored in a way that is complete and instant. And only God can do that. He didn't go into rehab. He did work, for goodness sake. He picks up his mat. What is this miracle telling us? Well, first and foremost, the miracle is telling us what Jesus tells us it is telling us. That he has the authority to forgive sins. In other words, the very moment that this man believed in his heart, Jesus is the solution to my problems, that very moment, his relationship with God was healed and restored in a way that was complete and instant. God counted him instantly as his friend. He didn't go into rehab. God didn't put him into a basket of of maybes, you know, and say, well, let's see how we get on. And we'll review the relationship in three months' time. See how you're walking. No, No, he didn't go into spiritual rehab. He was restored complete instantly he became God's friend. The moment he thought, Jesus is the solution to my problems. And that's astonishing. 
Theologians, theologians call this miracle, they call it justification by faith or justification by faith alone. And it means just that. As soon as we put our faith in Jesus, it's just as if we'd never sinned. God counts us his friend. We are justified, forgiven, righteous, in right relationship with God. What, what might that have felt like to this man on the mat? Well, I would think, I mean, this is speculation I'm imagining, but I would imagine that as he lay on that mat that morning, his friends carrying him, going into Capernaum, I bet actually he probably just had really all on his mind, dear God, I want to walk, dear God, I want to walk, please may I walk again. And maybe also on the way he was thinking perhaps for the billionth time about the stupid, avoidable accident, if only he'd heeded the warnings that had paralyzed him in the first place. But when he was being lowered down uh, through the roof, and Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Perhaps actually his mind suddenly turned to something else. Perhaps actually he suddenly remembered that, that, that one big unforgivable sin. The, the thing that he didn't think he could ever be forgiven for. The, the stupid, avoidable transgression. If only he'd heeded the warnings that had paralyzed him spiritually in the first place. Well, according to the Old Testament, there was actually a lot you couldn't hope to be forgiven for. There were some things you could be forgiven for, but a lot that you couldn't. And as a man raised on the Torah and the teaching of the rabbis, this man, he would have closely linked sin and sickness in his mind. Was this accident a punishment from God? Of course it was in his mind. And, and, and so to go home, astonishment of astonishments, to go home both physically healed as though that terrible accident had never happened and to go home forgiven as though that terrible transgression had never happened. What would that have felt like? It would have just been incredible. Imagine that perfect freedom to live by the grace of God and to walk with God to the glory of God. Freedom. So then, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, to heal our relationship with God, as well as, of course, to heal the body. What kind of authority? Uh, Jesus answers that question for us as well. Um, Jesus refers to himself as son of man, verse 10. I want you to know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. What does that mean? Well, the phrase in Hebrew or Aramaic would simply have been son of Adam. It simply means a human being. But Jesus is not calling himself a human being. Jesus is calling himself the human being. How are we to understand that? Well, certainly Jesus is showing us what it means to be a human being. But more than that, he's, he's taking us back to Genesis and to the promises of that book and to the promise of a seed of Eve 
the human being, a human being, the human being, who will crush Satan's head, crush Satan's seed, Satan's offspring. Genesis 3.15. This is the one who will destroy the power of sin and break Satan's work. How will he do that? Through the forgiveness of sin. This miracle speaks about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's not simply a magic trick designed to attract attention. It speaks powerfully of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Jesus is telling us that as the Son of Man, he is the human being who comes now in perfect fulfillment as God's authorized representative, able to perfectly represent God in everything he does and in everything he says, fulfilling, in fact, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. This is the one who perfectly images the likeness of God, created in the image and likeness of God, and so as a human being shows us perfectly who God is. Because he's human. Jesus is telling us that he is God's authorized representative as the human being. But that's actually not quite how he healed, is it? I mean, do you remember? He, he actually he didn't pray, nor did he invoke the name of the Lord. Rather, he said to the paralytic, I tell you. Who can forgive sin but God alone? No, no one. Je Jesus has the power to heal in himself and the power to forgive in himself because he is God. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. To, therefore, to, 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 to talk to Jesus is to talk to God. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. To obey Jesus is is to obey God, and to reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus is God with us. And so suddenly, actually, we've learned four really important things through this miracle. Jesus has the power to both forgive and to heal because he is the one who is fully human and fully God. Four things we've learned suddenly through this miracle. What else is this miracle telling us? Well, we've established that Jesus has the power to heal and the authority to forgive sins. We've actually skirted a little bit around the question, what is the relationship, therefore, between sin and sickness? Um, it's actually one of the most common questions that hospital chaplains get asked. Um, is God punishing me? And... Um, in the shock of a sudden terrible diagnosis or in the frailty and suffering of illness and pain, it's very easy, very easy to think, is God punishing me? And to be truly frightened and to think this is all hopeless and doom and everything is lost. Well, what is the relationship between sin and sickness? Actually, the Bible sees a very close relationship between sin and sickness. It is a very close relationship, but it is a complex one, not a simple one. Physical sickness is a powerful metaphor for sin. To turn away from God is to turn away from life. 
And in the Old Testament, sin and sickness and also healing and forgiveness, they're frequently, essentially, interchangeable terms. And yet, as the Old Testament also freely acknowledges and occasionally investigates, sometimes it's the wicked who prosper and the righteous who suffer. So there is a close relationship, but not a simple relationship. How, how might we answer the question, is God punishing me? Well, perhaps we might answer with something like this. No, if God was punishing you, you'd be nailed to a cross right now. God laid the punishment that we deserve upon his son on the cross in order that we, the transgressors, might be counted righteous. And he raised Jesus from the dead for our justification. No, God is not punishing us. He punished his son. Yet, and nevertheless, when we get sick or when we suffer, it's actually a very, very good time to uh, go through a list, to make a confession, to renounce and repent of anything that might be on our conscience, to make sure that we are not treating the grace of God as a cheap thing. And most importantly, when we're sick or when we're suffering, the most important thing is to run to Jesus, who is the solution to all of our problems. Is God punishing me? Well, Jesus is the solution to our problems, even when, especially when, our problem is God. And uh, James makes these same connections in the following way when he writes... Is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. In other words, run to Jesus. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. In other words, worship Jesus. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Literally, the prayer offered in faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. To each other, not to the elders, just to each other. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Um, after the service today, uh, there will, of course, as always, be a time of prayer. Uh, if you'd like to stay behind, um, if you'd like prayer for healing, then uh, uh, we've got some oil here. You may have been worried about what this yellow fluid in a sample tube was with a box of tissues behind it. Uh, it's oil. Um, uh, We'll have a time of prayer with um, uh, the anointing of oil and an opportunity for confession. Um, please come if you would like to be prayed for. Please come if you would like to pray. Jesus has the power to heal. We've seen that today. And even more importantly, to forgive sin. And so I'm always delighted to pray for healing, spiritual and physical, and to pray in Christ's name. Because that is the human thing to do. The Lord be with you.